Follow with me as I begin reading at verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings will you believe my words bow with me as we pray father we have just finished singing a prayer that you would be glorified that the entire trinity would be glorified that you would glorify your name on this earth lord that is our request that you would work this morning as we have worshipped you. That you would work as your word is proclaimed. That you would work in our lives and our response to your word. That you alone would be glorified and honored in Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Whatever barriers we have erected that would keep you from being glorified in our lives. Please tear them down Lord. Please remove them. Let us receive your word this morning with open hearts, hearts that are, are fertile in their soil to receive your word that it may bear fruit for your name's sake. Please give us ears to hear you, Lord, and incline our hearts to your testimony. In the name of Jesus, I pray and I ask this. And the church said, Amen. If you would allow me for a few moments at the beginning of this message, I want to go Christmas on you. After all, it's only 240 shopping days until it's here. 
Every Christmas there are a lot of movies that are released and shown again and again and some of them have truly obtained classic status. One of these movies, the one that came to my mind as I was thinking through this text, has been released in three feature films in 1947, 1973, and 1997. And every Christmas season it's performed all the way from local theaters all the way up to larger regional theaters. It is the movie A Miracle on 34th Street. The film opens with a parade, the Macy's Thanks or Thanksgiving Christmas parade taking place. And the Santa, let's just say he's a little bit inebriated, three sheets in the wind. And a man steps up out of the crowd, and this man looks the part. He's got the white beard, he's rotund, and he puts this Santa in his place. And through a series of events, he, this man becomes the new Santa at the department store. And he is good. There are uncanny things that he knows. When asked who he is, what his name is, he responds, Why, Chris Kringle, who are you? I am Santa. And the film unfolds so that eventually a hearing takes place in front of a judge to prove whether this man is actually Chris Kringle or not. Now I'll leave you in suspense to find out the rest of the story but Jesus in like manner is putting himself on trial here Jesus is saying okay you need to make a decision about me so here I stand because Jesus has made two very audacious claims I draw your attention back to the text to refresh you in them because I didn't read them this morning first of all in verse 26 Jesus makes this statement he says for as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. In that statement, Jesus is claiming to be life and to give life. Something that only God can do. So in making this statement, Jesus is claiming to be life. He needs nothing for existence and to give life. And in doing so, claiming to be God. Then he makes another statement coming on the heels of that one. As if that wasn't enough, Jesus then says in verse 27, And he, that is God, has given him, that is Jesus, authority to execute judgment. Because he is the Son of Man. So Jesus now says, I am the judge. A prerogative that only belongs to God the Father. So now Jesus has made two statements that would be considered blasphemous. He is life and he is the judge. And Jesus has put himself out there to say, okay, you are now going to ask the question, prove it. These are strong statements, Jesus. To our knowledge, the people would have said, you're just a, a, a speaker from Galilee, a prophet. Prove it now. How do you back up these accusations? You've put yourself out there now. Stand behind your statements. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Verses 30 through 47 use the language of a courtroom. That's why he opens his defense in verses 30 and 31 by saying, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear and I judge, and my judgment is just because I don't seek my will, but the will of him who sent me. Now look at verse 31. Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. In other words, as Jesus begins this courtroom drama, he says, I cannot serve as my own witness. 
the Torah prevented a man from serving as his own witness. In other words, when asked, how can you say that? You can't say, cause. Jesus is following the teachings of the Torah by providing other witnesses in his defense. The Torah requires that for any accusation, there needs to be a minimum of two witnesses to verify the truthfulness of it. Jesus, in this passage, provides three. He calls on three witnesses to take the stand and to provide their testimony that he has come from the Father and that he is indeed life and that he is indeed the judge. The very first witness is found in verses 30 through 35, 33 through 35. And it is the witness of John the Baptist. He says, you sent to John and John has borne witness to the truth. John the Baptist knew how to draw a crowd. I don't think he did so intentionally. But by his very presence and his very proclamation, people began to flock to see this man who lived on the fringes of society. More than likely, John was a member of the Essene group. A group that had withdrawn because they were disturbed at the corruption they saw taking place in Jerusalem and particularly regarding the temple. That's why when John appears, he seems quite out of place. He's wearing camel hair for his robe. He's eating locusts and honey. But boy, is he preaching. He is proclaiming the word in ways that people had not heard. In fact, prior to John's arrival on the scene, there had been a silence, a prophetic voice. But now here John comes, and John's preaching is to repent. That's why Jesus says that John was a light. He was a burning and shining lamp that was pointing to the greater light. As a servant, John the Baptist came to prepare the way for the Lamb of God. The Lamb who would take away the sin of the world. And that's why when John sees Jesus, he says, Look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Rather than being threatened by the increasing popularity of Jesus, John says, He must increase and I must decrease. That's the way it's supposed to be. Now because John the Baptist was drawing a crowd, because his preaching had authority, he didn't rely on saying, well, Rabbi Ben Kokobah says this and Rabbi Ben Simon says this. John preaches. The Pharisees come to investigate. They were not prepared for what they heard. John looks at them and he says, you brood of vipers you snakes in the grass who told you to flee the wrath to come the axe is laid at the root of the tree judgment is coming and the one who is coming to judge is coming with a, his winnowing fork of the spirit and of fire who told you to repent and the interesting thing is that they don't try to stop John there's no record of a plot to to get John to be quiet they simply rejected his testimony but did not speak out against what he was saying Jesus says the first witness on the scene was John the Baptist the very man they investigated and heard but Jesus is not done verse 36 he calls his second witness the second witness are the very works that Jesus is doing Verse 36, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. 
Jesus says, you want a testimony to the veracity of my claims to be life and to be judged? Look at what I'm doing. Now the word for works is a very broad word. It covers many things. It can involve his compassion. The way that he engaged in John chapter 4 with a woman that is on the fringe of society, an outcast, and Jesus meets her right where she is. His works involve his authority. John is recorded in John chapter 2 that when Jesus arrives at the temple compound and he sees the corruption taking place, when he sees that people are not being allowed to worship because they can't afford the taxes, they can't afford the added on surcharges to purchase sacrifices, Jesus is righteously enraged and he begins clearing out the temple and it says his disciples remembered the word of God that said, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus demonstrated an authority in what he did. But the works are primarily about the signs that Jesus did. The Gospel of John uses the term signs in regard to the miracles performed by Jesus. The sign is like a billboard writ large to say, this is who I am. And John records seven of them throughout the Gospels that serve as testimony to who Jesus is. Jesus turned water into wine. We speak that miracle very glibly, but do you recognize what Jesus did was to change the very compound, the very chemical structure of something. H2O becomes something much more complex as the very word of Jesus. Jesus has healed people. John, he has called a paralytic to walk. He has healed a nobleman's daughter, bring her back from the very edge of death. Jesus has walked on water. He will in the very near future as John records it. And I would remind you that the miracle of Jesus walking on water was not just Jesus taking a shortcut as if to say, well, I could walk around the lake, but that would take several days. I'll just cut across. The Psalms say that Yahweh walks upon the waves of the water. So church, when Jesus walks upon the water, he's doing something that only God can do. Only God. And then John chapter 11, the penultimate miracle that Jesus, the penultimate sign he does prior to his own resurrection. Jesus calls Lazarus from the dead. After being dead four days. And he says, these signs testify as to who I am. If I make the lame walk, the blind see, if I change the very chemical nature of water, if I raise the dead, these are all billboards plastering everywhere that I am the Son of God, the Messiah. And if the witness of John the Baptist is not enough, and if the witness of the works is not enough to convince, Jesus calls one more witness, his final and greatest witness. In verses 37 through 39, he calls God the Father. He says, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Now, here is a very, very, well, it's a not so subtle jab. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. He's saying, you've never seen God. Now, catch the irony here. Jesus is God incarnate. When they hear Jesus speak, they are hearing God. When they touch Jesus, they are touching God. When they see Jesus, they are seeing God. And Jesus says, you've not even seen God. Why? Because you don't believe. You're missing God and He is right in front of you. 
God testified about Jesus through the works that Jesus did. Jesus is clear. He does nothing on his own. Everything he does, he does because of the Father. The Father's testifying through the works. The other Gospels record where God the Father spoke at Jesus' baptism saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased to listen to him. But the primary way that God spoke and still speaks to who Jesus is is through his word. Look down to verse 39. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. The scriptures like an affidavit from God. It is God's statement as to who Jesus is because Jesus is the main point of the Bible. The Bible has been given to us so that we can know who God is and who Jesus is. And that by believing in Jesus, we might be saved. Throughout the scripture, and particularly the Old Testament, the foundation is laid that you and I can read it and know more and understand who Jesus is. The Old Testament teaches us that the Lamb of God needs to come and be sacrificed for the removal of sins. John says, Behold Jesus, the Lamb of God. The Old Testament lays the foundation for understanding the temple as the place where we meet God. Jesus is the incarnate temple of God. The Old Testament lays the foundation for us to know Jesus as the incarnate word. The Old Testament lays the foundation for us to know Jesus as the wisdom of God. The Old Testament points to Jesus as the one who leads you and me in the exodus from sin and death. The Old Testament points to Jesus who is the King of Kings who will reign forever and ever. The Old Testament shows us that Jesus is the beginning and the end. Jesus is the point of the Bible. And that, that is why Jesus says in verse 46 to these religious leaders, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. It's very possible. In fact, I would say Jesus had in mind Deuteronomy 18.5 where Moses wrote, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now, three witnesses have taken the stand. John the Baptist, the works of Jesus, and God the Father. Yet the testimony of Jesus is rejected. Now, these witnesses still speak today. The Word testifies as to who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit of God brings conviction. We read of John the Baptist in the Word still testifying of Jesus. So the issue as to the reason why the testimony is rejected is not a study in history. It's a study in our own hearts. Because just as these witnesses are still sharing their testimony, that testimony is still being rejected. And it's being rejected for the same reasons the Pharisees rejected it. You see, we reject the witnesses because we are prideful. There's no other way to say it. We want to maintain control of our destiny, our salvation. We want to maintain control of the work so that I can say, Lord, I have earned this. You see, the religious leaders of Jesus' time didn't just do Bible studies. They wrote Bible studies. They led Bible studies. They studied studies on Bible studies. Yet they missed the point entirely. The point of the scripture is to know and to believe in Jesus. 
It is very possible to be smart in the scriptures and yet be ignorant about Jesus. And that's where the pride comes in. They believe that just by learning the instructions, they would earn and merit their salvation. And Jesus says, no, you're missing the point. On May 7th of 1915, 104 years ago this next week or week after next the RMS Lusitania was sunk by a British submarine or a German submarine 1,198 people of the 1,900 passengers were killed in researching this tragedy for her book Diana Preston discovered something quite amazing and tragic many of those who were killed were actually wearing their life vests but here was the problem life jackets were put on incorrectly some had their heads stuck through the arm others put them on completely upside down so that when they hit the water the life jacket turned the way it was supposed to but since it was put on upside down their heads were thrust under the water all around the ship were posted signs giving instructions about how to put on the life jackets and those things were either read in a cursory manner or completely disregarded the point was missed that's the tragedy that if we engage in looking at the scripture but we miss Jesus we've missed the point and we are feeding a pride that gets puffed up at our knowledge thinking we can figure it out we can be good enough I read in the scripture the Ten Commandments and we think I can do the Ten Commandments we read of the things we shall not do and the things God commands and we forget the only way we can fulfill those things is by faith in Christ. You see, it was a pride that led the Pharisees to reject the testimony of the witnesses. And it's a pride that often leads us to reject them too. Another issue is that we love the wrong things. If you look down at verse 42, Jesus says, But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. In other words, you don't love God. How does Jesus know that? I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. Love for God is shown in receiving Christ. But then in verse 44, Jesus shows, shows the root of the problem. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? See, their love was gaining the applause of people. So when the witnesses come and they share their testimony, because it's not popular, because it puts them at odds with their traditions and the common thought of people at the time, they would rather have the applause of people rather than the approval of God. It sets them up for failure. A love for popularity. A love for approval. Thinking only of this moment rather than eternity led them to reject the testimony of the witnesses. And that happens this very day. To follow Christ is costly. And for many, it's easier to stay put. It's easier to gain the approval of those around rather than to be a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. And because of that, the witness of the, te the testimony of the witnesses is disregarded. 
This is a time where we need to check and to see for whose approval are we living. The story is told of a young man that was a very gifted violinist, superb musician. But he was deathly afraid of performing in front of a large crowd. After the criticism began to sting a bit too much, he finally agreed to perform in one of the largest concert halls in London. There was only one stool on the stage, and when the time came, he put his nerves behind him, screwed his courage to the sticking point, and walked out on the stage, and for half an hour, with his violin under his chin, played some of the most beautiful music you could imagine. When he concluded, after an hour and a half, the crowd went wild, applauding critics who came in very skeptically, put their pads and pens down and stood with smiles on their face, applauding. But they noticed the young man was distracted. Normally a performer would absolutely bathe in the adulation he was receiving, but not this man. He stood as if tense, just looking and scanning the audience. Until finally his eye caught someone. And then he smiled and enjoyed the moment. Afterward he was asked, what was going on? Why, why were you so late in receiving the appreciation? The young violinist took a deep breath and said, You know, I was really afraid of playing here, yet I knew I needed to do it. And just before I came on stage, I received word that my teacher would be in the audience. I looked for him throughout the concert, but I could never see him. But after I finished playing, I was able to look more intently. I was so eager to see him that I really didn't pay much attention to everything else going on. And when I found him high in the balcony, he was standing, and he was applauding, and he had a smile on his face. And then I was able to say, if the master is pleased with what I've done, everything else is okay. I wonder today, are we living for the applause of those around us, or are our eyes fixed? God and His glory? The answer to that is in how you respond to Jesus. Pure and simple. The testimonies given of John, the works, and the Father. The issue now is will we believe it? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me.